and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I sprayed me in my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know you can help us out at the podcast. So we set up something called a Patreon homepage. Patreon.com slash Intentional Performers is where you can subscribe to the show and give as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month to help us continue to grow the podcast. Thank you to those who have already given and have already subscribed. And if you're interested in doing so, once again, go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. If this is your first time listening to this show, welcome. We're glad to have you and excited to share today's guest. A little bit about me and the podcast. So I work as both a mental performance coach and an executive coach in the corporate world. And I get to work with CEOs, executives, athletes, coaches, and really elite teams. And I love what I do for a living, so fired up this podcast with the idea of trying to share some really interesting, intentional, hopefully just really rich conversations that will help you learn and help me learn and help us grow and help us unlock our potential and hopefully see some new possibilities that maybe we didn't see before listening to the show. So thank you all for being here, and I'm really excited to share today's guest with you. His name is Moses Maddox. We were connected through a former podcast guest, Roman Baca. Both Mo and Roman served in our military, and we are going to talk about that in this conversation. But Moses works as a veterans counselor at California State University, San Marcos, and he provides professional development services to veterans who have left the military and are in college entering their post-military careers. So you'll find out from Mo that he is just passionate about helping people, and he loves the feeling he gets when he helps other people. But one of the interesting parts of this conversation that Mo is going to get into is the ability to receive help as much as give help, and how we need to be vulnerable in order to do both. 
And so Mo's going to talk about his upbringing. He's going to talk about being in the Marine Corps. He's going to talk about what he did while he was overseas in Iraq. And he's going to talk about some of the struggles that he had when he came back from war. And certainly there is some heavy stuff in this conversation. And at the end of the day, Mo is just very passionate about helping people get help so they can live their best lives and be their best selves. So Mo is a bright guy. He is a vulnerable guy and he is courageous in a lot of different ways, but there's some darkness in his story and he's going to share that with you as well. So when I first connected with Mo, I realized really quick that we were able to just have a deep, meaningful dialogue pretty quickly. And he's somebody who's not that afraid to go into different crevices and dark spots in his past. And he also has a lightness and a brightness to him. He's somebody who I just felt really comfortable chatting with. So this conversation starts with just that, a conversation. And so there's not as much of a beginning in this episode. We fired up the mics and and during that conversation, there's some good stuff that came out of that. So Moses was really keen on using that in the podcast. So it's going to start a little rough, but I think it's true to Moses and it's true to the podcast as well. So without further ado, I'm excited to present to you Moses Maddox. For me, we're all an amalgamation of ideas and concepts and other people that Nothing that is in my head is ever original. It's something I heard somewhere, picked up something or observed something or noticed something. And to your point about the podcast, I started, it was called Beyond the Surface. And I was like, oh, I want to go deep and unpack really in-depth stuff. And as I was going, what people were telling me was basically that they live intentional lives. And I was on vacation when this came to me. I said, I need to change the name of the podcast. And to your point, the intro, everything, it's it wasn't who I was. I was trying to do a podcast rather than explore what's authentic to me. And that shift has been very liberating. And now I have a better sense of what I'm really looking for. And I think that resonates with my audience because when I ask them what they like, it tends to be these intentional gems that people share. So um, I appreciate that you noticed that. It's definitely been a shift. Uh, And it's been... It's been liberating. That's the right word. Yeah, I, I like that word, liberating. I mean, that's the same thing as a counselor. Like, a thousand people, you know, over my, you know, six years doing this. And it's like, <laughs> you know, like, I don't even know what I think half the time. Like, you know, when people talk social issues and stuff like that, I don't have an opinion anymore because, you know, these social issues are so complicated because society is just a conglomerate of individual people and every single individual person that I've ever talked to has their own story and their own path. And it's like, there's no way to summarize, you know, all, all of these people into one little package. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, I, I can see both sides to the same story, but also I can imagine a person who like, you know, like, you know, we take the immigration debate, like, I see one side of it, but also I see an entirely different side. And I know a bunch of people this would directly impact, you know, um, in a negative way. And you're like, why don't I have an opinion? Because I know this opinion affects people. And I think we're... There's nuance. And politics, we've said you're either Democrat or Republican. And there's such a lack of nuance in labeling somebody one of those two that it just, there is no nuance in that. And when you try to 
distill people down without nuance, you miss the complexity and the beauty of what is human beings. And so. Yeah, no, I agree. Man, we got, dude, are we, are we recording? This is some good stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> this is usually what happens is the before and the after. And I, w- I need to figure out a way to add, like, maybe at the end of the show, rather than the episode gem, I'll add, here's what we talked about before the mics were rolling. <laughs> and no, that's uh, Trevor Noah has that, you know, between the scenes thing. And don't I, I love Trevor. I, I love him, but his most when he's at his most compelling is when he's just interacting with the crowd. Yeah. Like the 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 stuff he does on Daily Show is hilarious and it's informative and stuff like that. And don't get me wrong, it's I, I like what he represents. But like whenever he's just vibing with the crowd, <clears throat> it, this, this is nothing better. You know, there's, like there's something that must happen where we turn on and then we turn off and we let we we do put up a guard when we know that something's live. You feel it. You feel the shift of performing. And I, I need to figure that out because some of my, I swear when we, when we hang up and then we may chat for a minute, I'll always be like that. What, where was that? Where was that? And, and there is, there's a performance element. And I think we all put on a performance mask that is less vulnerable. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like it, it was funny to to your point. In May, I was uh, um, <clears throat> I was the face of the VA's mental health month promotion, and so um, I was on. We we did this forty five minute uh, um, live stream through face or through YouTube Live, and <clears throat> so we did a one hour dry run. So we had the entire we had the entire conversation for an hour before, and then we had a follow up with the second conversation. So it was essentially two hours of the same conversation. But if you listen to the podcast, where, so he captured one hour and then the second hour, and the second hour is so completely different than the first hour. And so he took the first hour and wrapped it up into its own podcast because it wasn't live. Like we were just kind of vibing, joking around. I was talking about selling tacos and patting. I don't even know how it got there. And it was like, and you're absolutely right. Once they said you're live, right. You feel like, I, I wish I can capture, I mean, I've been in front of the camera so many times and I wish you can capture that. I can't describe it, what that pressure feels like, but you feel the pressure because I think it's, once you let your message go out, you no longer control the message, right? You no longer control it. Once you say what you say, you no longer control, like, you know, it becomes, it's no longer yours. It's however people interpret it. And so you have to be very deliberate and intentional in what you say, because if anything is taken out of context, you have to deal with a whole bunch of crap that you just don't want to deal with. You know, that, like. You think that's fear? Oh, God, no. What do you think it is? I mean, I think it's more like whenever you lose control of the message, then people make opinions of you, right? And then you have like to exist in this world, especially as a face of anything, like to even have immediate presence, like it's such a precarious line. It's a, it's a tightrope walk, right? Like, did my message go through? Did my message go through? Did my message go through? Just making sure people receive a message that you intend to receive is hard enough in personal communications, right? Hey, honey, you look great today. Oh, what? I didn't look great yesterday. <laughs> right? Like you, you've heard you've, I'm pretty sure you've dealt with that. Right? Like I, I would just say you, you mean to look good. Like 
so ensuring that people hear your message is such a perilous act that um, people just want to be seen and heard. And there's nothing more frustrating than wanting to be seen and heard, putting your message out there and no one's seeing or hearing it because they have their own thing. Like, so maybe it is fear, but like, I, I guess for people like me or Roman or something like that, it's just more like, oh, we gotta deal with this shit, man. <laughs> you know, like it's such a headache because of what we're trying to do versus sometimes what we're portrayed doing are, are two different things. Like, what was the point of that? Like when someone takes your message and then crafts it into something else, like what, why? <laughs> Like, what, what What are we doing here? Like, why, you know, there's enough crap out there. Why do you have to take my words? You know, like that is such a weird tightrope. And there is something to, it's not, the, the fake news stuff has gone very, very far, but there is something to our media and their goal and their mission and what they want to achieve versus what you might want to achieve in your mission in, in spreading knowledge and wisdom about your story. Those are, they're not necessarily the same goal right and so as an example like you know i definitely believe in what i do you know like i my role as a college counselor my role in examining the market and trying to build people up so they can like you know get jobs after college right you know i i really believe in that i believe that people should be a like people should be able to be empowered to tell a corporation no i don't want to work with you right and like this whole job searching thing is so backwards because it seems like the hiring managers have all the power. You know, and you see how people build resumes, right? They just put stuff on their resumes because they just want to get an interview. So they'll put stuff on there. And it's like, dude, if you're, if you're applying for jobs, you're, you're doing it wrong. Right. But, you know, so that's the big point. But like, I tell people, you know, people think me all the time, like, hey, you're, what you're doing for your veterans is great and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I appreciate that. Um, but it's not altruistic at all. Like, it is not altruistic. Like, I believe in what I do. I love my veterans. I love my clientele. I love what I do. But to say that I don't get anything out of this is a lie. <laughs> First of all, this is how I pay my bills. Second of all, like, it makes me feel good. Like, there's a give, this is transactional right? This is purely transactional. And if there's ever a moment where it's not transactional or something's getting more out of me than I'm getting out of it, I'm out. And all of a sudden, you know, and I feel like that's an honest message. Like, you know, there are forms of altruism, but at the same time, like, dude, this is my job. This is my profession, you know? And, so, um, so Mo, if you're good with it, we'll have all this included in the podcast. So we're rolling. Yeah. So, so we'll just keep rolling. And for those uh, that have been lis listening thus far, we're just going to roll with this and see where it goes because I think these are the conversations that uh, everybody wants to listen to. So we're, we're, we're live. So let's just, let's just keep rolling. I've learned early in my media, my, my media training that there's never such thing as a, as a dead mic. So yeah, no, no off the record stuff. <laughs> yeah, there is no such thing off the record. But so when I said that, that was my honest truth. Like it is not altruistic. I believe in it. I love my people and all that new stuff, but I definitely get something out of it. And someone took that message like, it's all about me. Like, oh, you're taking this great thing, you know, all, and it was like, no, <laughs> like it's transactional. It's all about us. We're doing like, my veterans help me as much as I help them. You know, like, I feel like I'm a better person because of the people I work with and stuff like that. Like, why is that such a bad thing? Why, why can't we be a little bit selfish and get something out of the work that we do? Why, why can't we? And, you know, that type of honest truth, people 
even if people agree with you, right, you know, in a private setting, people will agree with you in a private setting. I'm pretty sure you said some stuff that like, you've gotten a backlash publicly, but privately you're like, yo, I totally agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Mo, so I had, I had someone on recently who talked about leadership and that great leaders need to learn how to receive as much as they give. And I think that's what you're talking about is if you are just a Mother Teresa, altruistic, always giving to others, but you're not able to receive, you're going to limit your ability to lead. And selfishness gets a bad rap because we say, oh, you're, it's wrong to be selfish. But if you put on your oxygen mask, then you can help other people put on their oxygen mask. It's, it's leadership 101. And for some reason, our society always tells us that we have to be a certain way when reality is that nobody's capable of being that way. And so if for me, I feel, I feel the exact same way as you do. If I can really feel like I'm making an impact for those people, that's my drug. That's what I love. And I, it's selfish for me. I do it because I love the ability to impact other people. Part of the reason I want to fire up this podcast is to spread really wise, interesting, intentional performers. And because I want to, I want to learn from them too. Uh, it, you know, if, if I was just giving it out to the world, but I never actually got anything from it, I wouldn't keep doing it. I wouldn't. Uh, and that's okay. I, I I love that you use Mother Teresa as an example. Um, so right after she passed away in the early 2000s, uh, her diary was published, or portions of her diary were published. And so Mother Teresa, this altruistic, if we're ever to point to a modern day, you know, like Mother Teresa is, 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 is a synonym, right? Like when people are giving, right, and they're doing it in all this good, they'll be compared to Mother Teresa, right? Like that's, that's the ultimate good, you know, in, in modern day. And whenever you read her diary, you saw that she was tired, she was burnt out, she doubted, you know, she was full of doubt. Like, you know, she was giving so much and so much of herself and you, you know, there was a point in time where she even doubted her own faith. And it was like, we talk about a person who gives, 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 gives. And at some point, like you wonder in this transaction when she stopped receiving whenever she was just doing it because it's all she knew. And it's not to doubt the intentions of her, but it's all like, what, what did the world actually give her, you know, in the same breath as what she was giving them? Like she gave herself to the world. And was she open to receiving or was right. she closed to receiving because she was so focused on giving? Right. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with this transactional piece. And I, uh, it's a bridge thing, right? Like everybody talks about proper work-life balance. And I think that's who's really good at balancing outside of gymnast, right? Like, you know, do a tree pose in yoga and tell me how, how long you can hold that pose. Right. Um, so balance is, is, is one thing, right. And I, I, I really think more of life on the bridge, right. Um, you know, and I, I really bring this up in relationships, right? Like, in relationships, every morning you and your mate, you start off on one side, that person starts off on the other. And all you're really hoping is that you meet somewhere in the middle, right? That, that's a beautiful relationship. Optimally, you both meet exactly in the middle, but some days this person will meet you further to your side. Some days you'll meet further, you know, that person further to their side. As long as and while it averages, it still equals out. It's all good. The moment that that, that average starts tilting 100% one way 
and 0% your way, then we have a problem. Then that's when, you know, someone's hoarding the attention and that, or that's when someone is just giving way too much on themselves and not getting enough return. Like transactionality is a, is a wonderful thing. And, you know, as you said, or as you stated earlier, none of my ideas are mine at all. You know, that's why I don't take credit for them. Like this is the program that I'm running. Yeah, I'm running it, but there was a ton of people who've helped me on in the process. And it, every time they have, anytime someone hits me with a bit of knowledge, the question I ask is like, all right, is there anything I do for you, man? You know, what, what can I, what, how can I repay you? And most of the time it's just like pay it forward, right? If you publish something, make sure I get my credit, you know, like give credit where credit is due, but pay it forward because I got my thing. There's nothing you could do for me. That's a beautiful thing, you know? And some, that's, let the other person who's helping you determine what the payment is. And you realize that a lot of people give way more than they get. It's like those teachers that say, give yourself a grade uh, on this, on this class or this test. And they uh, give themselves a lower grade than what they actually would have earned. And I think our society does like most, most of my clients at least, and, and you and I both are able to sit down and have, in-depth conversations with people and, and we can create space for people to really do some deep thinking. And I find that most people struggle with arrogance, struggle with fearlessness more than they struggle with humility or, or fear of failure. Like they struggle. I'm not sure I articulated that correctly. What I would say is more people will follow society's norms because they are afraid of being embarrassed or shamed instead of going for things because of fear of that shame and embarrassment as well. So we often hold ourselves back because we want to fit in and because we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And to your point, if everyone, if you go toward the truly selfish, you're going to be selfless because you're going to know what it feels like to give to other people. And you're going to want to do that. And so I think you're hitting on something that I truly believe. What I'd love to do is go back a little bit and Get a, give people a little bit of an idea of who the heck you are and how you came to be. And you have an interesting journey. And so I'd love for you to share the bullet point versions of that journey. And then we'll come back into the mess and, uh, and talk about the stuff that I think we're talking about now. So give people some insight into what childhood was like for you and then uh, your decision to join the military at, I think, the age of 18. So um, I, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. Childhood was normal, like um, lower middle class. My dad was a hardworking man. My mom, hardworking man. And they taught me the value of just embracing the grind. You know, my dad was a person who was really, really good at his job and was seen as being one of the best at his job, but he never acted like it. You know, he, 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 would, tell me, he would tell me he knew he was good, but he never acted like he was good whenever he was at work. He would always... He, he was always studying, trying to figure out the next trend, right? Trying to figure out the next thing. You know, one of the things is like, it's, more, it's not important to write trends. It's more important to figure out what that next thing is and be ahead of that. What was and his job? He, um, whenever, he ran printing presses. And so um, in the early 90s, one day he came home with a computer and he was like, you need to learn this. I'm like, why? And he was like, because this is the future. Like this is before AOL. This is before Windows 95. Like I'm, I'm 12 years old learning how to program MS DOS. And like my mom, she was an accountant and she used Lotus One Two Three. And Homegirl can work a Lotus One Two Three. 
Like we're talking about back in those days. And my dad was just really, really good at just being ahead of technology. So, you know, when Windows 95 came out, we upgraded our computers. When AOL came out, we had internet. He, um, he pushed me to get, to learn programming, to learn Windows. And he would just like always pay attention to everything around you because everything you know now will not be relevant in the next 10 years. Like he was always that guy. And so he taught me never to be comfortable, but also be comfortable, right? Be comfortable with your skill set, but never be comfortable with the skill set in the same time. Like, don't rest your laurels on this. You know, you got this skill. How do you build on it? Be ahead of the future. And I always appreciate him for that because he never, he never went, he always worked not only to keep his job, but to earn the next one. And I so thought that was the coolest thing if ever. I, if I were to distill that down, he would always teach you to have the belief in yourself and to be comfortable in yourself and to never be complacent. With where you're right, at. like be comfortable with uncomfortability. Really, is is like, yeah, I'm really, you know, he would say other words, but he was like, yeah, I'm really good at what I do, but I, I don't believe that because the next thing is coming. And so, whenever he ran printing presses, they were all analog, right? So we're talking about like you would have to mix, you would have to per like hand mix the inks, and you know, you would have to, like all all sorts of stuff. It was all analog. And during that time period, he saw that computers were taking over. So he started figuring out how to work computer. Like, how is, how is the digital age going to impact my business? And when he, whenever he got out of the business is because he realized the computer age is going to make his business obsolete. Wow. And so you're, and he was absolutely right. Like, um, if you're running the, the art of running a printing press is going out because you have colored printers and nobody cares about the true quality of paper or ink. They just want to make sure that their stuff is like, he was, he was saying that in the late nineties before the printing industry went away, you know, and it didn't really go away, but it's definitely not the same as it was whenever he came up. And it was like, it was, you know, my, that, that was what he was, but um, long story short. And with my childhood, my mom passed away when I was 16 and um, that really had a negative impact on my entire family. And, you know, you just kind of see what's going on. And I, I one day I, I looked at the globe and I realized that Fort Worth, Texas was just a, not even a dot. On, like to scale, Fort Worth, Texas isn't even a dot on this globe. And I was like, I need to go. And so, yeah, I decided that the best. Mo, Mo, yeah. uh, what did mom pass away from? Uh, she had a stroke. Uh, so she had a stroke a couple a couple days before Christmas, and she passed away. Like, just one of those things. Like, I guess her time was up. And a name like Moses, uh, religion a, a part of your family and in your framework? Not really. No, they just gave you Moses. I mean, uh, that that's a family name, but I grew up not knowing part of my family. My biological mom uh, left when I was a a baby. So I have no clue why I was named Moses and just never really asked. Even if I'm in contact with um, that side of my family now, it just really, it, it didn't really matter to me at, at some point. It's like, I'm going to just go do me. And so, yeah, I joined the Marine Corps because literally- no, no, no. Hold on. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> this is the beauty of a podcast. We can, we can dive a little deeper here. So Mom passes at 16, not your biological mom, but who you consider to be your mom, the person that raised you. Right. Uh, you said that was hard on the family. Can you just go into that in a little more detail? She was the matriarch. She was, you know, the glue that kept everything together. And 
there were there was a ton of uh, family issues before then um, with the passing of my her her dad, my grandfather. Um, there was a ton of issues in in regards to that um, and taking care of my grandmother and there there was a lot of family drama and then whenever she passed away, I mean the entire family just imploded and you know every skeleton every every skeleton in the closet came came out and it you know everyone kind of went their own way after she passed do you have siblings i do um but i didn't grow up with them so i have two brothers but i didn't actually meet them until i was 30 so your biological mom had two other boys yes <clears throat> and are you in touch with your biological mom no because just don't see the need to you know at some point whenever you you grow up without them and you just kind of move about life you in in those scenarios when people choose not to be in your life when like they clearly made a choice and it's like all right cool i'm not going to force you like i'm gonna go i'm gonna go do what i do and that's the other thing my father really raised me it was like don't be afraid to be independent you know go out there and do what you think is necessary and at some point you just kind of you develop an analytical mind with that kind of upbringing you, you kind of just see situations for what they are and at some point i just didn't see the need and dad still alive still how, what, yeah. what's going on there my dad you know he's he's my best friend you know like he lives in tulsa oklahoma he's doing his thing and you know he he's someone who helps me stay humble you know you get a lot of media attention and, you know, you go viral a couple of times and all that new stuff. And that can easily go to your head. And one of the more profound things he always said was, um, I always respond to your emails. As an example, so after Letterman, so I was on a Letterman show. And I got about 5,000 emails, you know, because of that appearance. And I, we'll get to that story later. But, and I was like, Dad, I got all these emails. And he was all like, hey, you might not ever be on this level ever again. And he was all like, those people took the time to email you, even if it's just a five second email, you take the time to email them back. You know, like maybe they'll respond, maybe they won't, but at least got to make sure that like they reached out, they took their time for you, you take their time for them. And, <clears throat> you know, it, it was just kind of like, it's humbling to see like so many people respond, you know, messages, goodwill and good faith and, you know, good luck. And, you know, there's just a lot of good people out there. And these are, these are people you never hear about. Like these are people you know, to take the time to email someone off, a, you know, at one o'clock in the morning because there's just something about you that resonates with them or they're just hoping that the kid with the college degree does well. Like that means a lot. And those are people you never hear about. Those are actions that you never hear about. You know, I'm thinking about the world we live in today and social media and anyone that's ever seen a Twitter comment trolls, like the whole hate. Twitter hatred that goes on, it's, it's pretty disturbing. And what you'll see is when that happens on Twitter, there are always people that come to the person's defense. And there are mm -hmm. people that say, you know, get out of here, troll, or, or you know, what you just, it, it happens. And so I think they both exist and we have to be aware of both. We have to be aware that there are people that sit behind a desk and they live for the moment to make fun of somebody or embarrass somebody. And they get something out of that that makes them feel good. And there are also these people out there that will always come to your defense and because they believe in that as well. Um, I, not only that, so um, 
when I used to work for a nonprofit called the Mission Continues. And every year we would send out, um, we would make thank you calls to all of our donors. And we, we would have thousands of donors and we would call them individually. And what I found that was most compelling, like we just like, hey, my name is Moses Maddox. I'm a fellowship program special with the Mission Continues. I just see that you donated $5 to the Mission Continues. I want to call and say thank you so much. You know, I would hit those talking points. And like, it didn't matter. $5, $5,000, you got the same phone call. And what was funny is, you know, people didn't know what to do with a thank you call. They were like, hey, you know, thank you for your call. I'm definitely donating next, you know, next season. I didn't call for that. I just called and say thank you. Like, that's it. There's no sales call. Like, wait, what? Yeah, for real. Thank you. Just thank you. Like, thank you. Oh, 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 okay. Like, they didn't even know what to do. Like, a simple call, a goodwill, a simple gesture to say thank you was met with this, like, suspicion. Like, they just didn't, there were so many people who had no clue what to do with just an act of kindness and saying a, a simple thank you. So, was Mo, so Moses, when I say thank you for your service, like, truly, like, thank you for your service, how does that land with you? Um, to be honest, and I don't want to speak for all veterans, but I do speak for a lot of them. They don't know what to do with that. And here, and I'll give you my example why. I didn't join to serve. I joined because I was really horrible in high school and I knew I was going to fail out of college and I want to get the hell out of Texas. I, there was no service here. It was a job to me. And yeah, I, I went overseas. I, I did my job and I came home and did my job and I got out. Like, I, I feel like on some level, most veterans be like, I, there was no service here. I joined because, you know, the, the GI Bill benefit was awesome. And, you know, or I wasn't going anywhere or I was just too, like there's, there's all these reasons, right? Um, the reason why I joined was not for service, but the reason, and even when I came back, I got out and I came back in, wasn't for service. But the reason why I enjoyed it all because who I enjoyed serving with. Like I, I cared more about my brothers and sisters than anything, you know, and that includes family. Like the Marine Corps came first. And, and so it was like, was it service? I, when you look at the traditional definition of it, no, it wasn't, you know, like, yeah, I definitely wrote a check, you know, um, and I was willing to, you know, risk my life doing this, but that was part of the job you know, and, you know, it definitely feels cringy because that wasn't service to me. And it's so interesting because the people that you were calling, they might've given a $5 donation and not felt like they were really doing anything or maybe a $5,000 donation, depending on somebody's ability to give. And I was just curious as you were talking, like, what is that like for you when someone says, thank you? And are you focused more on the thank you or are you focused more on the service part? It's more the thing. Like here, here's the difference between donating to a nonprofit. Like, let's just play this example, right? There's a difference between donating to a nonprofit, right? And what's insane is like, we live in this cap, like this capitalistic environment, right? Where you get as much as you can get, you know, get, 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 right? And then, but there is this other side where, what was it? A nonprofit generates about 300 billion in revenue, right? I, th I think that was a stat from 2006 where American people donated almost $300 billion to various nonprofits, you know, around the world, right? And so why, 
you know, during a time of recession, you know, where donations didn't tail off and stuff like that, people were still giving. It's like, why? Right. And I always found that fascinating because people, there is a sense of altruism in society. There is a sense of giving. Right. And I feel like even if you just give five dollars, which might not mean much to some people, might mean a lot to a lot of people, um, that is a simple act of kindness right? Where my military service was a job that I signed up for. Like no one's, like no one's thanking me for my role as a counselor, right? Why? Because I get, I got a nice 401k, I get a nice salary, right? You know what I'm saying? I get to go home nine to five. Like to me, there was no difference than what I did in the military versus what I did, what I'm doing now. It's a job. Yeah, um, but, 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 but Moses, from, from my perspective, the difference is you could have gone and worked at McDonald's or gone and, you know, gotten a job somewhere. And maybe you, you compared the two and said, well, I'm going to make X at McDonald's and I can make Y at, in the military. And maybe you thought that way, but there is an element of service from my seat, from where I'm sitting that comes with putting myself in harm's way. And I would say the same to the fireman or the police officer or the doctor, even, even if they're making like the, the surgeon that's making a lot of money, I still want to thank her or him. We need people that are willing to do the tough stuff. And so when I'm saying thank you for your service, I'm acknowledging whether you did it because it was something you had to do something you wanted to do from a legacy standpoint, something that you were excited to do. For me, you're still putting yourself in harm's way so that I can sleep better at night. Whether that's your choice, whether it was an intentional decision or not, from my seat, there's still a need to do that. In the same way that that person doesn't have to give money away. And by the way, the charity piece is a really interesting concept because some cultures don't have philanthropy. And Amer right. American philanthropy is, you, you hit the nail on the head. We give so much more money away than the rest of the world. There is something fascinating, the polarity of giving and getting in this country. We are 100% capitalistic. Like we have this side of us that is go get yours and go get yours so you can also give. And that's not to say that everybody that gets gives, but you look at the numbers, it is mind boggling what we do philanthropically. And you take a society like China who, you know, they have a lot of very, very wealthy people uh, now, but they don't have a culture of, of giving. It, it's just philanthropy doesn't really exist there, which is pretty fascinating. It's, it, let's, let's do two things. One, and I, I'm glad we're having this conversation about the thank you because it, it's, it's polarizing even amongst veterans, right? And I also want to acknowledge this, right? We talk about the fear of messages not being received we know it's coming from a good place. We know it's coming from a great place. And we, most of the time we say, hey, thank you. Thank you for your support. We did it for you, right? There's always that talking point where people are like, all right, you know? And we know it's coming from a good place. And this highlights something that I truly believe, right? Um, that even in this, polar, this polarity, right? There's so many good people out there. There's so many wonderful people out there that even when we have this polarized thing, either you're Democrat or Republican, I try to view it from this aspect of like, maybe they are coming from the best place, 
maybe it is coming from a good place because there's a lot of good people on both sides and let's exit out the racist and misogynist and all that like the people who are are rooted in hate let's ex exit them out let's just go to the people who vote democrat or vote republican and i know a lot of good people on both sides and you realize like if you take it from the point of intentionality like maybe they really believe in these ideologies because they want to be helpful to american society and they think this is the best way to go about it then cool all right maybe let's have a conversation about that why do you think this is the best way to go about it why 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 do you think this is better than that and it's really encouraging like all right we you drew your lines in the sand right you think this is the best for america you think this is best for america cool now let's exchange ideas instead of calling each other's names let's present data let's do some research let's pre and <clears throat> let's present facts like what are the facts to back up what you have to say what are the facts that you have you know back yourself up and then let's like there's got to be a way to reach a middle ground like this polarization is really really bad for america but i really do believe that at some point there's going to be a pendulum swing to where we start talking about things again and you know because i think people are tired of the lines in the sand you know well, like I, I, I I think the political climate we're in now is an amazing opportunity because we're starting to see truth come out from, from a bunch of different sides. People are starting to have dialogue and people may not like what they're seeing, but at least it, it, it is potentially an opportunity because it is so visceral. And the thing that I'm thinking of as you're talking, Moses, is your story. because when you talk about ideologies, you had to go overseas after 9-11 and talk about ideologies. I mean, there is massive ideology there. And, and what you also did working in military affairs, like seeing death and what can come from ideologies. I'm curious for you how you wrestle with empathy as it relates to terrorism and some of the stuff you might have seen overseas. So one of the things that's always fascinated me is I always wondered what people see, right? Um, like I would go to an art museum and I would look at an art piece with someone, a stranger. And let's just take a, you know, let's, let's take a modern art where all they do is like paint a big square blue and all of a sudden that goes for like 30 million, right? Um, you know, you see a big blue square, I see a blue, big blue square, but, how do we see this big blue square, right? I've always wanted to see things how people see it because it just fascinated me. Like, you know, the human experience, we can look at the same thing and see two different things, right? Like, I mean, we, we talk about the polarization. People hear the same, a person say something and, and can interpret it a million different ways, right? And so that's something that's always pushed me is like people fascinate me, not, not people, a person. Persons fascinate me, right? And so, yeah, whenever I went overseas, you know, I went over as a Marine, you know, like, let's kill the bad guys, let's get the insurgents and stuff like that. But I was in mortuary affairs. So like, on some level, you can't really do that because you're cleaning up the mess that was left over. And I hate to refer to our fallen service members as messes, but, you know, there was a lot more people who passed away over there other than service members, and we had to clean them up too, you know. And one of the things I learned is whenever you deliver a national to their family, ideology be damned. These are people and they're grieving, right? Like a person who passes away over there, even if they're a terrorist, right? 
they're still connected to people. And, you know, all these stories coming out about like, you know, how terrorists become terrorists, you know, how suicide bombers become suicide bombers. And sometimes the families are interviewed and you see the despair in their voice whenever they realize they lost their child. Not only did they lose their child physically, but whenever their child went, went about the, this path, they lost them mentally, you know, and spiritually way before they lost them physically. Like this is a complete loss for these people. And <clears throat> the idea, like to me, uh, ideology is dangerous and ideology is, you know, prevents progress. And you, you see what people are willing to do for, for a belief in ideology. And when you sift through it, like these are human beings, you know, and <clears throat> these are human beings that are attached to other things. And I think ideology separates people from each other and draws clear lines in the sands and dare you, dares you to cross them. But like, there's times where I was like fascinated, you know, with, you know, things going on in Iraq. It's like, how does this olive skinned guy with a beard, you know, wearing, you know, a, a, a man dress kill this other olive skinned guy with a beard wearing a man dress? Like, how do you kill someone who looks just like you? Like, that's the power of ideology. Theology. like you can't you're, you're basically killing the man in the mirror and you know i saw that every single every single time period every single body that we sent up like it was just another person where there's going to be a bunch of people who are going to just have this gap in their life and i think my mom passing away <clears throat> was really influential in my thinking about that because even now almost 20 years over 20 years later i still miss like i still feel that lack of presence you know, how, and, how did you still execute your job when you're <laughs> wrestling with those types of things? The great thing about the Marine Corps is reps, 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 reps. Like you just, the Marine Corps, you do repetition until it's muscle memory. Muscle memory is a huge thing in the Marine Corps. And you just learn how to turn your brain off and do the damn job. You know, at the end of the day, like you're still in a war zone, you're still, you know, you still have to assume that a sniper has you in a crosshair. So you got to do the job and go home. But on top of that, like they still are our brothers and sisters, right? Like the military, like we sent 153 home during my time there. Like I definitely bought into the fact that like the family deserves every single part of them to go home. You know, um, the sins of Vietnam are still there where you have hundreds of still, you know, MIA POWs that never have been accounted for. That's seen as a great tragedy because everyone should come home, like no one left behind. But in Vietnam, we did. We left a lot of people behind. And that was something that was brought up a lot in our training. It was like, we'll bring everybody home. Even like, even if it's a tiny little piece that we have to put in a sandwich bag, everyone comes home, every single bit of them. And you train that, you know, and that gets put in your brain and you just turn it off and you just do your job. You said that sometimes you just have to shut your mind down and, and just do the job. Anything in particular you would do to disassociate from what you were actually involved with? Um, no, it was more about decompression after, you know, like we all had something like we would, you know, leave the, uh, we would leave the wire, go pick up our body, you know, do what we needed to do. Um, and then most of us would either go to the gym, others would like play Xbox, you know, we just, the recover, the decompression piece was the most important part. What would you, you know? do? Um, I taught martial arts. 
And so we had like a little crew that did, um, we worked a lot of jujitsu, a lot of Muay Thai, but the gym was my sanctuary. And that was a place where I just, you know, do something else or, you know, whatever, whatever feelings I had, I would take it out on a bag. And as you think about your journey with mental health, talk about going back there and would you do anything differently as far as taking care of yourself to decompress or to prepare? Is there any changes that you would make? Hindsight is twenty twenty, um, to be honest. And we had to really talk about mental health and the progression that we made. And we had to give credit where credit is due. And whenever I got out, mental health was a boogeyman, right? What year, like, what year was that? 2006. And so, like, if you were struggling with you know, it was still seen as shell shock. Like they didn't even call it PTSD yet. Like that wasn't even a term or it was a term, but it wasn't a term that the military was using. But also if you're struggling, you're kind of seen as a bitch. Like you're weak. Like, how dare you? Like we all went through it. Why are you struggling? Right. That kind of stuff. And the dirty little secret is we all, we all were struggling, but no, no one really wanted to admit it because they didn't want to seen as weak. Right. Um, you kind of touched on something like that uh, earlier. <clears throat> and so you know, hindsight being 2020, like I knew I was in trouble. Like I knew that things weren't right. I just didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was PTSD. I didn't know it was mental health. I just knew that like, man, I needed to drink a lot to go to sleep. And I would just act out when I drink. And all of a sudden I had the, this anger and all of a sudden I had this rage. And like, you know, I would hulk out in a, in a, in a certain way that like was really, you know, clear indicators that not all was right in the head, you know, but because I didn't want to be seen as weak and because I had the machismo and because of all this other stuff, like I didn't take care of myself. And I, <clears throat> if I was more honest with myself at the very beginning and started getting, like, it really boils down to timing. I should have got help earlier than what I did. And that's what it really was. Cause like, even knowing what I know now, I would have went back over and did it again both times um, because I learned a lot. Like, I don't think I'm the person I am today without those experiences. I just don't think like I, I really subscribe to the idea that people are molded by their experiences, both good, bad and ugly. And yeah, I don't know where I would be if I didn't have those two deployments to really, those two deployments influenced so much about my undergrad and how I wrote things and how I viewed things, especially with, you know, with being a humanities major. Um, no way that I would become the counselor I am now or the academic I was then without those two deployments. But it really boils down to timing. I should have been more honest with myself and those around me like, hey, I'm struggling and I need to go get help. So take us back to 2006. And you're, it sounds like you're, you're drinking heavily at night. There's some anger. There's some rage. What was that like for you to, to go through that? And um, just paint that picture a little bit more for us. It was some Dr. <clears throat> some Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde stuff, to be honest. Like, it was two different people. Like, there was times where I would be a witness to my own rage. Like, I was, it was like an atom. It, it was like someone was in control, but it wasn't me. Like, that's what it really felt like. And there's times where, like, part of that heavy drinking was drink away the shame of whatever that was. Like, it, it was just an entirely different persona. And I had no control over it whatsoever, you know? And yeah, it was, there was a lot of shame, a lot of just like apologizing because I would, 
go into these rages and then have to fix the relationships later. And then at some point, like people would just give up on you, right? And so the loneliness starts kicking in, the isolation starts kicking in, and like the the self the the victimization, like the self victimizing, and so you know, is me against the world. So, but you're hurt, you know. Like not only are you hurt because these people turned back on you, but also like you become very conscious that you're the reason why all this is happening, and the biggest enemy that I've ever had to face more than anything, more than, you know, terrorist or whatever was myself. Like the person in the mirror was such a broken individual, you know? And then when I finally had that come to Jesus moment to where like, you know, it's just you know, like, I'm looking in the mirror. It's like, it's you. Like it's not, it's no one else. It's you. When was that? And how did that even, how did that even occur that you would have the awareness? Um, so I talked about this, you know, um, with the VA, but whenever I met this, I had this girlfriend, loved her, thought she was the one, uh, July 3rd, 2007, we were having a drink and then I don't know what happened, but the next thing I know, we're yelling at each other. Next thing I know, I pushed, I pushed her, you know, so domestic violence was the bottom out, you know, and I could talk about it now, but like, it's one of those things that, you know, that I have to, that's on my resume too. You know, like I did that and the relationship didn't end, you know, in that moment. Right. It took forever for that relationship to end, but the insecurity that came about that, the, the, the shame, like everything like got amplified even more because I did something that was so nowhere near who I am as a person, but here I am, like I did that. And, you know, that started this low decline to like wanting to, you know, like I thought I was, I lost every single job that I had. I got fired from everything. You know, I, I hadn't seen my son in months, um, kept drinking, credit scores completely ruined, you know, just struggling. And I thought that maybe I had topped out, like that maybe the Marine Corps was it for me. Like that was as good as I'll ever be. And if this is, if this is it, if that's, I'm not going to be that old guy, you know, who's 47 years old, still wearing his, you know, high school letterman jacket because he scored four touchdowns, you know, 30 years ago. Like, if this is as good as I'm going to get, I don't want to be here anymore. And so, yeah, I mean, the domestic violence to suicide piece was, you know, such a bottom out that like, yeah, you just look in the mirror and you're like, do I really want to do this? And I didn't. So what's the problem? You, you're the problem. So what do we got to do? Well, got to fix it. So, yeah, I mean, that's how that started. What does that feel like for you to go back and, and tell that story? Where do you feel that? I mean, <clears throat> I spent the month of May talking, you know, telling that story. And on some level, it, it's exhausting because it's one of those elements to where for me to help people, I had to go to some of the darkest moments of my life to do it, right? But at the same time, I have the strength to do it for some reason. Like, not everybody can tell that story. Not, not everyone, I feel like everyone should tell their story and be honest and be open and be frank and be honest. Like, mental health is this weird, still this weird boogeyman, even with all the uh, progression that we made. But the more people start talking about their struggles, and like their innermost thoughts and how they struggle with some of these things. I think we would have a more enlightened society to where we stop victim blaming when someone says, hey, I'm suffering from depression. You know, like, um, 
so while it's exhausting, it's helpful. And, you know, whenever I did come out and talk about domestic violence and my role in it, one of the elements was that people were just like, hey, thank you. You know, but, you know, the trick is like, you have to accept your part. Of it. Like you had to be like, there's no reason why I did what I did. I did it and own it for good, bad, you know, good, bad, or the ugly. Like I did it, I own it. And, you know, I'll forever be apologetic to that. How does that thank you land for you? Sad that this is a thing, you know, like that people suffer needlessly. Like, you know, whenever you do that, there's two, and it's not equal. Like these aren't, I, I don't want to say that there's equality here, but you have the shame of the, like the people who are aware of what they did and they're truly sorry, they have that shame and they have to live with that. Like there's one piece. And the second piece is the abuse itself, right? Like the person who got abused, like they're forever traumatized. Like once that kind of trauma happens, you don't go back to being the same person. Like it changes you fundamentally. It, cha- it almost changes your DNA. And there's a lot of, you know, in talking to people, victims of domestic violence, there's a lot of people who miss the person they were before it happened. And on some level, it could be such a simple fix. Like, don't be afraid to go get help. Don't be afraid to, you know, admit your truth and then do something about it. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of sadness there. And it's 2006. And you make a decision that I'm going to go get help. And back then, as you sort of are referencing, that wasn't necessarily the norm. And we didn't necessarily, we were not as accepting as we are today. And that's not to say we still don't have room to grow from today, but it is a different climate when it comes to mental health. So talk about what it's like for you to go down that path. Um, I became the boogeyman. All of a sudden, I'm crazy. You know, like whatever friends I had left over, just maintain their distance because you know, PTSD. Like during that time period, and we're in 2007, 2000, like 2007, 2008 area. And during that climate, the the stories about PTSD were, you know, the veteran who snapped and he killed somebody, or you know, like the 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 crazy veteran story, which is makes for you know, I'm sure entertaining news at the very least. But um, whenever it came to all of that, like I was outside of my son's mom, like I was completely alone, you know? And what was interesting was it was, it was a weird thing because people were blaming me for my own issues, which on some level, maybe they were right. Cause I volunteered to go to Iraq twice. And so everything that came about that, you had to make, you know, assume that like I volunteered for everything that came out of it. And maybe, maybe there's some sort of truth to that, but yeah, it was, it was a lonely path, but at the same time, I'm glad I walked it. How, what help helped you? What, 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 what kind of help? Um, I had, I, I got lucky, you know, like, unfortunately the VA has this tendency to just throw pills at somebody, you know, and good luck. I had a counselor who refused to like give me meds. And so I mean, she was so honest and saying like, hey, some days are going to be worse than others and some days you're going to hate me and some days are going to feel like we took two steps back, you know, but trust the process, trust the process, trust the process. Like people think that mental, like you go to like a week, you know, uh, seven sessions and all of a sudden you're cleared of your mental health issues. Like, no, like that is not how it works. And 
um, mental health itself is like, you don't know how long it takes to recover. You don't know how much trauma that you actually have. You don't know, like a lot of people aren't really aware of how much stuff they went through to, you know, how much trauma they went through until they sit down with it, you know, and everyone has their own cross to bear, but yeah, it took about a year, year's worth of counseling and reflection and anger management training and realizing that like, you know, whatever dreams I had weren't real. Like all, all this stuff is, it was such a journey and it was such a grind. It was such a pain in the ass <laughs> on some level to go through it all because there are days where, especially when I decided to like, all right, like I still enjoy good beer from time to time, but I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not going to drink to cope. I'm just going to sit with this. And if that means I don't sleep, it means I don't sleep. But my brain's trying to tell me something. So I want to sit with it. Yeah, it was a pain. But one day out of nowhere, I just woke up and I was like, I'm ready. Like, I wish I could tell you the trigger or whatever. Just one day I woke up and I was ready for the next step. What did that feel like for you? Um, anxious. There's a lot of anxiety that goes, like whenever you start taking that step, like, all right, all I knew is what I was doing wasn't working. And so I just needed to try something different. That's all I knew. Like whatever plans I had are completely bunk and they're gone and I don't have any plans anymore. So I need to be open-minded and just try something, just do anything, just start the conversation. Don't even have a plan, just, you know, take one step forward. And so I, in 2007, I failed, I completely failed out of college. And so to me, the boogeyman was college. Like I need to go back and I need to, you know, not only read, retake these classes that I failed, but then I need to go get a degree. And I don't even know what that means. But at the very least, I need to start showing up and start doing this damn thing. And yeah, that little decision just to start school, like I'm ready for this. That's all I knew. But I didn't really have a plan. So what was school like for you as you go back and and get into it? Um, it was a whirl. Um, I started school in 2008. You know, I restarted. And my professor asked me to, she knew, I was, she knew I was a vet and there was this professional development piece. The, and what they, the, the professional development um, was for staff and faculty at Palomar College. It was where I used to go to. <clears throat> and the topic of conversation was how to handle veterans with PTSD. Think about that title, how to handle veterans with PTSD. Like, what do you mean handle? Like, you know, what, what does that even mean, that handle? Like, I just didn't understand the, I, I didn't understand it, right? And so what I realized in speaking at this conference was that there was a lot of well-intentioned people who had no clue what they were talking about. And they were just so well, mis they were so far misinformed about PTSD and mental health. And at first I was angry. You know, I was like, screw you guys. You guys just suck, right? But it was like this kind of Jesus moment to realize, like, yo, you can either get angry or you can educate. You know, like, I've just come out of recovery. Like, I'm, I'm ready for this. And I think I could talk, I could tell my story about, like, hey, I have PTSD. I'm diagnosed with TBI. I'm diagnosed with PTSD. And I'm here. And trust me, the only thing that's going to drive me crazy is these freaking midterms, right? <laughs> you know? And... I didn't, I don't know if it was a conscious choice, but I'm like, I, I'm just going to speak up and tell my truth. 
And I did. And the next thing you know, I'm the president, I'm the co-founder of a um, student veterans organization. Next thing I know, I'm the you know, president of it. Next thing I know, I'm lobbying in DC. Next thing I know, I'm on Letterman. Next thing I know, I started my career. And it was, it was such a flash, but it really boiled down to, I just started saying yes to everything and started telling my truth and being as genuine as I possibly could. When I hear tell my truth, I hear vulnerability. And uh, we talked about this on the phone when we first chatted, which is a Brene Brown, who does, is an awesome writer and just a really, really well-informed thought leader researcher. And she talks about what is the key to leadership? Well, the key to leadership is courageousness. What is underneath courageousness? Vulnerability. And when I hear you talking about, I'm just going to speak my truth and have the vulnerability to go get help and to go down a different road than the road you were going on, that to me is vulnerability. And I think people think that vulnerability is just expressing yourself in a naked way. And that's not vulnerability. Vulnerability is doing the deep work, the hard work to find out who you are and who you want to be and how you want to show up. And then speaking that truth into existence. And that sounds like that was the path you went down. But you also opened yourself up publicly. And we started this conversation with you talking about that a little bit. When you go on David Letterman and then get 5,000 emails, what did that feel like for you other than the ego part that you mentioned earlier? What, what did that feel on your shoulders? And, and how did you feel that? Um, here's what I'll say. People ask me about my biggest regrets. And one of my biggest regrets is that I wasn't present for these moments, right? Um, Letterman hosting some, some random, like, remember, I'm not a Congressional Medal of Honor winner. I'm not a thought leader. I'm, I hadn't even graduated college yet. I was graduating that week. <laughs> you know, I was just some guy, you know? And that was the point was, you know, Letterman wanted to have someone just like veterans are normal people, you know, like they have families, they go to school, they have dreams, like they're no, they're not boogeymen. They're, they're just normal people at the end of the day. So let's treat them normally. And also let's help them get a job. Um, and so on the back end, it was like, all right, cool. So for the next 15 minutes, you know, on this late night TV show, I'm going to be the solo voice of veterans. Like I'm going, to re I'm, I'm going to represent all veterans across the nation for 15 minutes on the show in front of millions of people. And you just feel the burden because like, you don't, you want to make sure that you represent your entire community very well. And number two is like, I knew that this was going to be a job interview in front of the nation. Like that was, that was the bigger point. And so you had to say things in a way to ensure that like people wanted to hire you. And you're, I was so worried about making sure the message was received and making sure that I represented myself well, that there was never a moment I'm like, you know, holy blank, I, I'm on Letterman. Like, I, I'm, in the green, I'm in the green room at the Ed Sullivan Theater, right? Like, Betty White's next door, right? I, I just hugged Betty White, you know? Like, all these other, like, I was never present for that because he was just always worried about the next thing. And... Yeah, there's times I wish I can go back and just enjoy it. You know, like I've never been in a five-star hotel room. All of a sudden, I'm on like the 50th floor overlooking Central Park. Like all these moments just were things that I did. And it was such an out-of-body experience because, you know, the moment it starts, the moment it started, you know, like the next moment it ends. And it's on to the next one. And 
Good. What do you do now to try to ground yourself in the present? <clears throat> um, it's that. It's just like this is you almost kind of point it out, right? That's what I said. Like, you know, this morning, hey, I I want to sit, I want to be on a podcast about intentionality, right? Like this is a thought podcast. Like I'm people are going to tune in and hear my thoughts. And you know, these deep philosophical thoughts, maybe something gets something out of it. Like, that's cool. You know, like everything I do is like I'm just in the moment of like just I point it out in my head of like I'm doing this, you know? That's cool. So you know, you, and you use your own voice to really parse out and remind yourself. And there sounds like there's also an element of gratitude in, in being grateful for the position that you're able to share your message and what comes with that as well. Exactly. Like the, the other piece about Letterman is like, I thought that, you know, okay, I'm awesome. Everybody's going to love me forever. Blah, 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 blah. And I took on every media spot and like I did all the media ever. Right. And the problem with that is you get burnt out. And then you, you, there was a point in time to where I'm like, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Right. I don't even know what, what is the point of this? And so now I, in my journey of making mistakes, I'm learning, like, there's only, there's conversations I want to have and conversations I don't want to have. And the conversations I want to have is about like, you know, thinking and thoughts and philosophy and like, um, but at the same time, knowing that fame is fleeting, right? This popularity is fleeting. It, can, it goes just as much as it comes. Like, I'm still on my 15 minutes. It's just my 15 minutes has lasted six years. But I know one day this is going to go away. And I want to make sure that I represent myself and my community as well as I possibly can um, for no other reason that, like, I know one day it's going to go away and I'm, I'm completely okay with that because this isn't part of my identity. My identity is, you know, who I am. This just is something I get to do, you know, as part of it. How would you describe yourself from an ident identity standpoint? That's an interesting question. Um, I describe myself as a kid who never grew up, you know, at the end of the day, I still see myself as this kid from the East side of Fort Worth who struggled in high school and didn't know he was going to do much and i still see the world as that like i'm still just i'm still a kid from east side fort worth and i view it all as that it's like i never saw myself doing this i never remember podcasts didn't even exist in the 90s so <laughs> let's be real uh you know to to be on tv to be in the papers to do all this stuff and just some kid you know and I always make sure that I'm rooted where I came from. You know, my dad came from humble beginnings too. And he let me know that, you know, never get comfortable. Right. And he still views himself as like, you know, some, some Cajun from, you know, back of Louisiana who did pretty well for himself. Like don't get caught up in the moment because, you know, something can happen and you're right back there. When did you decide that you wanted to be a counselor and help people with careers? Um, probably about a year ago. <laughs> and so I was just, so in my, in my academic journey, I just kept on saying yes to everything. Yeah, I'll do this. Sure. I'll do that. Like I didn't have a plan. So I'm, I'm just kind of saying yes to things, hoping that something will come out to play. Right. And all I knew is that everything that I've done is because a community is behind me helping me. 
whether it be the VA and the counseling or the veteran services at Palomar College or the veteran services at Cal State University of San Marcos or Vacuum Afghanistan Veterans of America or Wounded Warrior Project. I can name drop all day. Like all of, all of those entities um, helped me, right? All those entities like pushed me, right? And all I knew is that I wanted to give back in the same way that people gave to me. Like I, I felt one obli obligation, but two, I just felt like the only time I'm really in the moment is whenever I'm sitting down with somebody. Right. The only time like nothing ever matters is what like right now, nothing matters. It's just you and me. Let's do this. Right. And so I started paying attention to that. Like, where, where am I the happiest? And yeah, I've done all these things on the national level and been published and blah, 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 blah. And that stuff was cool and I enjoyed it. But all I knew is that all I want to do is just sit down with someone and talk with them. And so what's that thing that lets me do that? You know, and um I haven't started a podcast, so therefore counseling became a thing. And I didn't know that I wanted to be a counselor. All I knew is that I enjoyed helping people succeed. I enjoyed watching people grow. And I enjoyed the fact that they invited me to be part of that journey. But at the end of the day, their success is their success. And I love watching, watching people succeed. And this is what allows me to do that. And I know a, a framework for how you work is seeing people as whole people and seeing their whole self and being well to their whole self. What do you do intentionally to make sure that yourself is being whole? Um, so I, everything that I do is because I learned it in the process. And so I got fired from my last job, uh, the job before I started here. And the reason why I got fired is because I didn't take care of myself. Like I was so just trying to be a good company guy and I loved the job that I was doing. I was trying to help everybody. And I, was, I wasn't saying no to anything. And, and at some point you find yourself working, working 16 hours a week, you know, 16 hours a day, never taking a break. And sure, you could do that, but at some point you burn out. And the, the role of the counselor, you have to feel things. You have to be in the moment. You have to pay attention to people and be, you know, all you have to be genuine in your approach, right? And at some point, like I wasn't even genuine anymore. I was so burnt out. And the whole personal wellness approach was presented to me by Erica Paya. She's my director. And one of the things she said is like, we're, we're the sum of all of our parts, right? Like, you know, for a person to be a good professional, they need to be, they need to make sure that their family's taken care of, that their money's taken care of, that, like they're being their true genuine selves. Like why, why are people choosing the path that they wanted, that they chose? Is it for money? Is it because they, they you gotta get to know these people. And so many um, career agencies are just mills. They just try to get you to get that job, right? But if you're not whole, if you're not okay financially, if your family is broken, if you're struggling with mental health issues, it's gonna be a matter of time before you burn out and you're gonna need a new job. And so being able to sit down and take care of somebody and like, hey, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your family. How's your financial aid? You know, why did you choose this major? And getting, sitting down over many hours with the person and getting to know them, you start to help them form their own identity. And whenever people figure out their identity, they also start to figure out what they actually want to do as a profession. They actually start to figure out who they want to be as parents. Um, we can show you how to get jobs all day long. That's easy. But is it going to be something you enjoy? Is it going to be something you're proud of? Is it going to be something that, you know, wakes you up 
do you need, you know, really boils down to like, do you need an alarm to wake you up in the morning or do you wake up because you're excited to do it? Like those are questions that people don't ask. They, I, I think that the most damaging question that people ask is like, what do you want to do? And they don't ask. And I think a more important question to ask before that is who are you? Um, and so those are learned, those are lessons I learned on my journey because I lost myself in all of it. And yeah, so I learned how to take a break. I learned how to turn it off. I learned how to explore different subjects. I learned how to, you know, just be in moments and just enjoy my life for what it is, um, because it's a pretty cool one. So I think that's a great place for us to wrap. Uh, but before we do, I'd love to give you a megaphone to promote anything that you think deserves promotion. Uh, so I'll just leave that open-ended for you. Um, so because I'm on the clock right now, uh, for any student veteran who is pursuing computer science, mechanical engineering, like any sort of computer engineering, computer science, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, um, please go to veterans2energycareers.org or um, go to the student or to the veterans page at Cal State University of San Marcos um, and look up our program. We are providing full paid internships to those students who are in STEM pursuing um, STEM degrees um, who want to do their concentration in renewable energy. Um, so that's my job. Um, and the biggest megaphone is like people take care of yourself. You know, that, that's the big thing is like, don't be afraid to take care of yourself. Don't be afraid to put yourself first. Um, because if you put yourself first, good things tend to happen. Awesome. Uh, well, I am on social media and I know you are as well. So give people uh, where they can find you on social media as well. Uh, find me at Moses.Maddox on Instagram, Moses Maddox on Facebook. And I am also really good at LinkedIn. So find me at Moses Maddox um, on LinkedIn. And if you need any help or if you have any questions, feel free to hit me up. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then Instagram intentional underscore performers. And before I let you go, Mr. Maddox, I want to thank you. And I want to thank you for your service even if it might not have felt like service, it was. Uh, and so I'm just very, very grateful that you and, and others continue to do that. And I wanna thank you for the service that you're doing now. And you mentioned earlier for being a counselor and guiding young men and women on their path and on their journey. And the last thing I wanna thank you for is for you. And when I asked you, who are you? You went to the place where you're from. And I would challenge you a little bit on that. And uh, I, I think who you are is courageous. I think you're vulnerable. I think you're humble. I think you're hardworking. And I think you are somebody who is interested in making this world a little bit better every single day. And I want to thank you for being present with me for the last hour and change uh, because it's made for a really great conversation. And I'm really grateful that our, your friend, Roman Baca, connected us. Uh, Roman is a rock star and was a great podcast guest. And I'm just grateful that he connected the two of us. And I'm looking forward to many more conversations with you in the future. And I'm excited to see where your journey takes you as well. And to return that, thank you for this. This is a conversation I was excited to have. Um, I have enjoyed all of your conversations so far. Um, both with other people on podcasts. Um, Roman rocked it. That was one of my favorite podcasts of the year. And just thank you for embracing yourself and putting yourself out there and taking a chance on your idea and just allowing this to happen because I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Moses. All right, have a good one.
Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You know, like, I've just come out of recovery. Like, I'm, I'm ready for this. And I think I could talk, I could tell my story about like, hey, I have PTSD. I'm diagnosed with TBI. I'm diagnosed with PTSD. And I'm here. And trust me, the only thing that's going to drive me crazy is these freaking midterms, right? <laughs> you know? And I didn't, I don't know if it was a conscious choice, but I'm like, All right, I'm just going to speak up and tell my truth. And I did. And the next thing you know, I'm the president, I'm the co-founder of a um, student veterans organization. Next thing I know, I'm the you know, president of it. Next thing I know, I'm lobbying in DC. Next thing I know, I'm on Letterman. Next thing I know, I started my career. And it was, it was such a flash, but it really boiled down to, I just started saying yes to everything and started telling my truth and being as genuine as I possibly could.